and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling ideas and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week is the final episode of our Hunger Games trilogy read-through. This is, yeah, the conclusion to Mockingjay, as well as kind of thinking back to the entire series that that Mm -hmm. we've read together. So it's a bit bittersweet. (laughs) We've been at this for a while, a little over a year at this point. It's been great, but now it's coming to an end. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a really wonderful way to spend over a year intentionally and carefully going through a story that we already cared a lot about. And I certainly found quite a few new things to love about it. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know for The Hunger Games and Catching Fire, we did a silly little recap of what happened. This time... What really happened in this book? Sad. And then more sad? More sad, yeah. Yeah. Social critique. Depressing. Yes. And then lots more sad. Morning? <laughs> Morning. Tears? Tears. Sad. Sad. Yeah, so that, that was basically sums up. Yeah. You yeah. remember all those points, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So why don't we go into our new insights? This is where we are thinking about what has come to us through our reading in this much more in-depth analytical way of these books. So what, what's new for you? Sure. Well, one thing definitely that I noticed, and I brought this up as it was happening in our chapter read-throughs, but really paying a lot more attention to Katniss and Peeta coming together, I think really enhanced that aspect of the story for me Mm. because I think before I had read this carefully, I had seen it more as, well, PETA eventually turned back into the PETA that, you know, it was a PETA v. Gale. And then it was that last, you know, comment that Gale makes and her reflection on it of, well, this is what she needed to survive. Mm -hmm. This is what compliments her, not the fiery rage that Gale brings that she already has or what have you. But that's such a simplistic read on it. And so going through it together and and really seeing how hard it is between them for so long and how difficult that is and how ultimately Katniss is the first one to reach out, how she touches his hair, she combs his hair with her hands, how she kisses him and how she does these things that aren't romantic but are reaching out because she sees that he is struggling and she wants to help people that she cares about who are struggling. She also recognizes in that her need for him to stay alive. Yeah, I just, I think that it was a much more intentional and fraught relationship of them coming back together than I had remembered. Mm-hmm. And then I'd kind of taken away from previous read-throughs, probably because I was just kind of zooming through when I wasn't really taking that time. So yeah, I I appreciate that. And, you know, a lot of my kind of notes for today are thinking about things very kind of narratively. And that is another example of Katniss having real agency in this relationship, of her reaching out to Peeta and being someone who doesn't just wait for him to get better or wait for him to win her over, but instead is the one who kind of starts that 
intense healing of their relationship. I love how you're the one who's always like, this isn't just a romance love triangle story. And then it's like, first new insight, it's about their relationship. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) But I had a couple other examples that are a little bit more about the wider issue. (laughs) Uh, Staying on PETA, I really noticed how his hijacking is a really concrete example of the capital's abuse and the trauma that occurs because of it. Mm-hmm. Beatty describes it as hard to undo because fear is tied to the hardest memories to root out, the things that can be really foundational and most remembered just as a survival tactic. That really is just highlighting that this is something that becomes a traumatic event that changes him deep, deep, deep down. Mm-hmm. And how that is what the capital system has always been, is a way of changing the districts, beating them down, traumatizing them in all these big and small ways, and making them in the games and making them in other ways have to compromise themselves in order to survive. And here they're taking away directly his agency, his control, his... uh his self. It's a very explicit metaphor for those wider systems. And I also love that we see the hardships in PETA trying to overcome it, but also his determination and the help of the people around him that he does put the effort in. He does struggle, but he does work to make things better. And he can't make it all go away, but he can learn to live with it and maintain his self and his agency and be his own person, despite the ways that they try to control him. And so, yeah, I I took his hijacking, I think, generally as a story beat much more seriously and much more profoundly in this read-through than I had previous ones. Hmm. Yeah. And my final new insight is just realizing kind of the significance of medical care as a symbol in this story or as a theme. Hmm. Because... Some of the most tragic examples of the Capitol and District 13's violence and excesses are aimed at medical care. We have the bombing of the hospital in District 8. We have the killing of the medics like Prim. And I think that's because even though Katniss is not a healer, her family are healers. And that there is a kind of compassion and goodness that comes with healing that takes it so far away from the healing that can be done by, for example, the the capital, right? When, when the capital has to do medical operations on Katniss or on PETA, it's typically in ways that are really two-faced, that are really exploitative. It's... Well, I mean, they did the damage, right? I mean, there's that (laughs) to begin with. And yeah, it's just, well, we want to make sure that we can continue to utilize you in the new ways that we want to. And can we make your boobs bigger? And, (laughs) you know, all these other kinds of elements. Whereas for healers like her mom and Prim and the people in District 8, it's about trying to mitigate the harms that are done by this oppressive system. I just think that that's, uh, that's powerful. Not to mention the fact that Katniss and other characters are themselves constantly in medical treatment. 
that they are in and out of hospitals based off of the harm that they occur in ways that they really aren't in the earlier books because most of the danger comes in the games and you're not getting medical treatment in the games. Mm -hmm. But here, as they're fighting a war, there's constant need for medical treatment. And that's physical and, and mental health. And it's never enough, again, to heal everything, but it is there uh, sometimes, at least, in ways that are meant to help someone move forward um, after the physical and mental traumas they've experienced. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that you said that you're not getting medical treatment in the games because the instances where they do, it's only through compassion, right? Mm. It's Katniss helping in any way she can, PETA, yeah. until the blood poisoning, you know, there's nothing she can do about it except risk her life to get the antibiotics, right? Yeah. And then in Catching Fire, you have her helping patch up Beatty after he took a knife in the back. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's just not the thing that you're quote-unquote supposed to do in the games because if you help someone, then that somebody could kill you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Or you could say the same with Finnick doing CPR on mm -hmm. PETA. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you don't bring a competitor back so that they can kill you. Mm-hmm. And why that moment did affect Katniss to such an extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But what about you? What new insights do you have to share? I think for me, there's two main ones. And the first one is just how much of a anti-capitalist critique, minus the epilogue, <laughs> the, <laughs> the books are. Previously, I knew it was there, but just how interwoven it was, I kind of missed, I think, just in everything else that was happening and all the different aspects really interesting aspects that Collins adds into the world, but thinking about it more holistically as an anti-capitalist critique of exploitation and greed and wealth disparities and things like that um, has, yeah, been really, really interesting mm -hmm. and I think really driven a lot of our discussions, mm -hmm. especially with our touch point sections thinking about things as how they can parallel or connect to our world. And I think also that now that we've gotten to the end of the books, it does not seem to me, at least, that District 13 is supposed to represent a communist critique in a way that's juxtaposed to the capitalist critique of the capital and how the rest of the country is run. Mm -hmm because their entire society is more like a stringently resourced military base mm. than it is a communist society. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that it's not just like, yeah, but everything's bad. I mean, obviously, if you have tyrants leading, it's oh, it's it's going to be bad. But yeah, I, I know that that was something that we had kind of wondered about before. Like, oh, is this what this is going to be? Mm -hmm. But having read it, I, I would conclude no. Yeah, just because there's communal elements at play mm -hmm. doesn't mean that it's necessarily communist. And 
I think the wider critique is that, yeah, systems that at their core or in their leadership are willing to sacrifice children for personal gain or power are ultimately corrupt. And that's all systems in our world. And not just sacrifice children, but like use people totally. and control people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the other one that has really stood out to me throughout our readings of these books is agency mm. and how key it is to the story and moving that story forward and why Katniss really is able to inspire a nation. Mm-hmm. Because it starts with her breaking the social norms of District 12 by volunteering. Mm-hmm. And then breaking the games by allying with Rue, by burying her, by pulling out those berries, and then breaking the games again in catching fire by blowing out that force field. Mm -hmm. Literally breaking the game. Yeah, (laughs) literal. And then like you were talking about last week, when she killed coin Mm -hmm. she was given one arrow and the task to kill snow and this is what she's supposed to do this is what's expected of her this is what everybody in penem is agreeing with pretty much and she doesn't do that she takes this other action even if the consequences will be death even if the consequences will be hatred and you know everything Mm -hmm. so yeah i think that it's so integral to these books and part of why these books are great that in this utterly oppressive system she continually finds new ways to go outside the parameters that have been set up for her and use agency in these creative bold ways and it really does break the world yeah (laughs) And her willingness and at times expectation to sacrifice herself for it. You know, she isn't just thinking outside the parameters that is in front of her, but she's also willing to die for her actions, Mm -hmm. for doing what she thinks is right. Yeah, and and I think it's a great way to the Collins draws attention to those things is by her continually being used Mm -hmm. by others as a pawn in these games even when that happens she keeps finding ways to break out of that and yeah i mean reading these books previously i've really liked katniss and so many qualities about her but her agency wasn't something that i had thought as much about Mm. being interwoven in into the story in the same way that i do now yeah like we've talked about in the past, it's not just agency in the social context of her making choices despite the limitations that are placed upon her by her society, but it's also agency in the narrative con- context where she is constantly propelling the plot forward. Mm-hmm. Her choices are the things that are affecting her life and the world, and that, I think, is also really important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But why don't we move into our next section, which is Character Spotlight. This is where we are thinking about a character or, you know, a few characters that 
really stood out to us this read-through in new ways. And here, I think we're particularly looking at Mockingjay. Yeah. But if, it, if a character's present in more than one book, it can extend beyond that. Yeah, for me, and this should come as no surprise to anyone who's been listening on, Cressida <laughs> is yes. one of the characters. Oh, I thought you were going to say Peta. <laughs> no. I, obviously. You already talked about yeah, him. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Cressida's been really interesting, this read-through. Absolutely. I've been really impressed by the ways that Cressida becomes central to the cast and to the narrative, even though, and maybe because, her role is a behind-the-scenes role. She is a director. She is someone who's behind the camera. She's not casting herself as a major icon in these propo films that she's making. Right? Mm-hmm. She is not the center of it. She is the person who's helping to create these stories. Yeah, I think that that's really wonderful, too, to see a character who embodies the ways that people can be part of revolutions and can use their skills against oppressive regimes, even if they aren't the leader of a resistance. They aren't using charisma to bring troops into battles. They are not a soldier. They are someone who has other talents. She, I think, uses those talents in ways that are really meaningful. For one, she helps to cover for Katniss. She helps to fabricate stories for Katniss that will help her live a life that's more comfortable or achieve her goals if need be. But she's also one of the most understanding characters for Katniss's experience. Cressa doesn't push Katniss into having to relive trauma that she's not prepared for or, mm-hmm. or yeah, having her story and her trauma being turned into a tool that she's not a willing participant in. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of the book, when Katniss is saying, I'm going to go al- alone, the other soldiers say, no, we're your unit. And she says, no, we're your crew. Like... I think it's so much more impactful for me in this read-through to see how she has been a really essential person in not only helping to make the Mockingjay a icon, but also in maintaining Katniss's agency throughout that mm-hmm. and in supporting her in those ways that I think are, uh, yeah, just really important. So yeah, I, I think Cressida has really stood out to me in a lot of ways, but narratively, I think there's a lot to appreciate about having a character like Cressida who is able to do as much as she does, despite the fact that she just came in as a director. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it's it's so much more than just, hey, she's here to show not everyone in the capital's evil, mm-hmm. you know? But she has real qualities to her character that give what she's doing depth. Mm -hmm. And her actions have impact in the story, you know? Yeah. And impact on Katniss. But I also think she is really important, too, as an example of an ally. Mm. What an ally should be. Because she is willing to risk her life for the cause because she has been privileged 
by all of this and all that can happen to her is bad things for going up against it. Yet she does it because it's the right thing to do because she cares and has compassion for people that are oppressed so that she can have a better life, you know? Mm-hmm. So she gives up everything for it. And not... I know it's it's a little difficult. It's not a completely simple comparison to compare Cinna and her because of all of the surveillance and stuff that was happening in the capital versus being outside the capital. Mm-hmm. But like you're mentioning... Cressida doesn't use Katniss. Mm -hmm. She tries to follow Katniss's story rather than trying to create a story around Katniss. And Cinna didn't quite do that. Probably they had a rebel meeting or whatever. They decided she is going to be this Mockingjay symbol and this is how we're going to help fuel the fires of rebellion Mm. and even though he tried to take the brunt of it on himself and he did die for it he still did choose that for Katniss in a way she didn't choose it for herself but Cressida we never see doing that she asks Katniss questions if Katniss doesn't have anything to say and she can sense that she can't go there. She can't deal with this right now. She can't talk about it. She moves on. She Mm -hmm. does something else. You know, she's such a great example of someone who is willing to take the trauma, the body trauma, the psychological trauma to be an ally in ways that we do some, you know, we do sometimes see in, Mm -hmm. in this world of people getting arrested, getting beaten, all sorts of things. As we've even seen recently, again, in Iran with huge uprisings for women's rights. And Mm -hmm. there have been tons of men involved in those uprisings, too, when being beaten and killed and arrested and stuff by police. This is what people should be doing, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think think Cressida is a prime example. Uh, and, and a really important character to have in the book because we need that example as we're comparing these things to our world. Mm-hmm. You know, we already know that we are like the capital. All of the <laughs> uh, most developed countries in the world, everybody who has access to the things that they need is getting access to those things through exploitative means. Even... You know, Sweden, (laughs) nice, very socialist in a lot of ways country, you know, they're still getting clothes, imported food, imported things like that. So it's still a part of this global capitalism. And so, yeah, I think I think she is a crucial character that I'm glad we're finally Mm -hmm. uh, acknowledging and understanding. Yeah. Yeah. You putting it as her being an ally is so true. She's literally platforming Katniss. Mm -hmm. She is using her privilege to tell her story. Yeah. Yeah, And she's nowhere to be seen. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had one other character I was thinking about, and that was Beattie. Oh, Beattie. Yeah. I think I have a more fraught understanding of the character than I had before. Mm. You know, because his kind of logical thought processes, I find really interesting because he builds weapons to help win the war, 
But at the same time, he's very concerned with ideas of population Mm -hmm. and ensuring survival of the species. And so he has these kinds of different levels of analysis and, and thinking in he's literally okay with building weapons that kill people while he understands these wider threats that killing people can create. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to be in his mind. I want a short story of understanding how he's rationalizing all of these things. Exactly. Because you know he's rationalizing them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that it's really fascinating because he is willing to, for example, weaponize compassion, as we've talked about. So his own compassion, I think, is less of a priority for him than worrying about the extinction of the species, which is also connected to how he feels about the systems at play and how oppressive they are. But then, as we've noticed, he's also can be a really good friend to those he's around, mm-hmm. where he reaches out to Katniss and says a kind word to her and understanding of her. Or when Gale says something drastic and very <laughs> uncompassionate, he doesn't challenge Gale, but he starts to try to talk through that idea in a way that I think is the best way you can support someone who's saying something awful, <laughs> who you care about, you know? So yeah, I just, I find his character really interesting Less because of just the fact that he's really smart, as much as I am often drawn to those kinds of characters, but more because he is engaging with so many different levels of societal problems, and sometimes in ways that are kind of contradictory. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I just find that that very, very compelling. Yeah, definitely. Because anytime there is a vote, anytime there is a conversation where different people are giving their opinions, he's voting against the violent things. But it's not because (laughs) it's violent. Mm -hmm. It's, no, we can't have Hunger Games because we need to stop seeing each other as enemies. Mm -hmm. Not because that would be morally wrong as much as that would have a negative effect on Mm. the population Um, yeah good point so yeah it's just it's it's very interesting because yeah at the same time he's helping do these weapons so i wonder if for him it's all about the outcomes of individual actions Mm. so it's like i will do these weapons because we have to win and overthrow the capital system but as we're doing so along the way, if something's not necessary violence for that end goal, then if it's going to have a negative effect, no. But yeah, we don't really know everything that's going on in his head. But yeah, he's he's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I think this read through in particular, understanding better his affection for his friends was really, was really cute. Because yeah. I hadn't thought about that before. Mm-hmm. What characters did you want to spotlight? So, Snow is one of them. Mm. Because this is the first time I've read the books after reading The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. And so after being in his mind for so long, a very scary place, (laughs) (laughs) it really did inform reading him the past year. Because instead of him being only 
vindictive and violent and oppressive and a serial killer. Only having that side, which is obviously still there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but now also understanding his philosophical side, like his philosophical beliefs and how they're incorporated to make him a more complex, albeit no less vile, mm-hmm. character. But his actions are not only motivated by violence and revenge and power and things like that. They're also motivated by his underlying beliefs, um, which, yeah, has been interesting to, to think about that. Yeah, that he sees himself as justified. And not just because he has the power, and not even just because he's a snow, mm-hmm. although that's there. Yeah. <laughs> but there's also this if we don't do this, all chaos will break loose. Of course, there's the superiority idea of people in the districts are lesser than he is and people in the capital, but there's also the understanding of human nature to him. Mm -hmm. Um, Which, yeah, again, from our readers on Grits and Snakes, I don't entirely disagree with, but I wildly disagree with his conclusions of what to do and i think being in his mind for songbirds and snakes did help with some of those from another point of views Mm -hmm. where we talked about snow because yeah we we are much more familiar with his thoughts absolutely yeah if you haven't read it yet Go read Songbirds and Snakes. It's a, it's a good book. Absolutely. And we have a read-through companion for that. So you can listen to us talk about every three chapters. Yeah. And then the second person I was really thinking about is Gail. Because I've been all over the place with Gail in this read-through. Thinking about him, trying to read him as an indigenous person and how that could impact his feelings about Katniss liking this white boy, Mm -hmm. his feelings about taking his country back, you know, and, and not just dethroning the rich white people who are oppressing him, his community and everyone else, but doing so violently, you know, uh, So giving a little more compassion to some of those things that I've been frustrated with Gail in in the past, but also just being very, very frustrated (laughs) with his his interactions with Katniss and his, like, pushiness about the relationship, his expectations of her, the final words he speaks, you know, like, his whole attitude gets all, like, uh, (laughs) very bad mm-hmm. and since we've been going through it slower it's i think stood out a little bit more but at the same time wondering about his process of change along the way really for the first time for mm-hmm. me wondering about if he changed through his experience in war and his experiences interacting with people from other districts and interacting with people from the capital because these are people he's hated people from the capital and then he gets to interact with Pollux and Kester and Cressida and Masala, you know, and it's mm-hmm. different. It forces him to see them as humans rather than just oppressors. And they are definitely both. And then the people in District 2, because they are the capital's military backing, 
just having so much hatred of them and wanting to just lock all of these workers in the mut in the nut to die to mm-hmm. slowly suffocate or die from wounds and then what we find out is that he has some job in district two in the end and he's working there uh which yeah is just very interesting it makes me wonder if he hates them less now knowing i don't know maybe the violence the horrible violence he was party to mm-hmm. and maybe judging them a little less harshly mm-hmm. because now he judges himself um well, that would be nice <laughs> or also maybe it's just because it's not the idea of people in the nut it's i'm seeing people's faces i have to interact with people as people and that changes things right and so yeah, yeah I've, I've more also fraught <laughs> understanding of gail but i guess more hopes that he will change for the better yeah, I mean, I certainly hope so. I always took him working at District 2 afterwards to mean that he was maintaining a place in the military. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Making more violent weapons? Yeah, or, mm-hmm. or commanding people or something. And I like your interpretation a lot more. But the other, the other way, you know, talking about how he changes, the other thing I think that probably has affected him in this book is the fact that he is a leader in ways that he never had been before. Mm-hmm. And for someone who's that young and that fiery and that passionate, I can imagine that also having a market effect on someone to have some of the most powerful people in the world listening to you at the head of these rebellions and to be able to say all the things that you've said throughout your life and have them possibly have meaning, um, mm-hmm. you know, that could probably go to one's head in some ways, particularly someone that young. So yeah, there could certainly be a really fascinating reading of these events through Gail's perspective and the ways that he engages with his, these things and, and changes over the book, even if I'd rather eat one from Petus. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it would definitely give more insight to mm-hmm. what, what's going on with him. Because <laughs> sometimes I'm just like, Gail, what are you doing? Yeah. Sometimes I'm like, Gail, great. That was a good thing. And then <laughs> other times I'm like, Gail, why? <laughs> well, why don't we move into our next section, which is narrative threads, connecting points from each book in the trilogy and thinking about longer narrative arcs. Kind of building off of your discussion earlier about agency. Hmm. I was wondering and thinking a lot about to what extent Katniss Katniss has agency and exerts agency in becoming the Mockingjay. Mm. Because the first part of this book is all about her eventually choosing to become the Mockingjay and getting specific stipulations that come along with that and, and things like that. But when she goes to District 8, she realizes in her conversations with the people there that for them she was already the Mockingjay before she'd made the choice to become one. Mm-hmm. And this ties into things like Cinna's outfits for her and the ways that this narrative had already been discussed even when before she was 
making those propos. And yeah, it's just, I think it ties into ideas of a symbol being larger than any one person can make it once it, it catches. But they become communal ideas in certain ways too. Hmm. Yeah, I think that it's an interesting parallel between in the first book and the second book, each book ha her having a different role that is forced upon her, that in some ways she chooses, but in some ways she doesn't, where she becomes a tribute by choice to save her sister. She becomes a victor and a tribute again, in part because of her own choice to almost eat the berries. And then she becomes the Mockingjay because she agrees to do it. But all of those have these wider systems, these wider issues at play, where especially people who have power are trying to use her for their own gains. So yeah, just thinking about agency, I think it's another area for this book that a slow read kind of struck me with, of being able to see how those issues of agency being limited, but also her making bold choices, continue throughout this book as well. It's mm. not just over because she's not in the capital anymore, but District 13 is doing the same, and I think that becomes especially clear when, as soon as her death is reported by the capital, Coin goes in and starts trying to use her death as a rationale for continued resistance. Mm -hmm. That Coin is immediately ready to use her death as another tool. Um, especially since she was ready to cause it with PETA. Uh, so, yeah, I just, I find it really interesting to see how even her becoming the Mockingjay is itself a really nuanced issue that isn't entirely under her control. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting that when she agrees, it's under conditions, mm -hmm. which I think that's... Yeah, that's exerting her agency to bargain, to yeah. force Coin's hand to say, I need everything on this list, and you're also going to announce the other victors have immunity in front of everyone, or you're going to find yourself another Mockingjay. And, and also, to even consider it, I get to go back to District 12 because I want to see it for myself, what happened, you know? So she was definitely exerting her agency, but that's not necessarily because she wanted to be the Mockingjay. Yeah. But she was still exerting agency along the way to becoming it. Exactly. Yeah. The other narrative thread that really struck me in this read-through was kind of thinking about the text, comparing it to the first two, because the first two have a pretty clear antagonist in Snow and in the capital. But this book, as we were reading, I felt more and more like the primary antagonist of this book is Coin. Mm -hmm. It's not Snow. Snow is a secondary antagonist. Because we see how Coin was attempting to play Katniss and Snow off each other. Snow even says that at, near the end of the book. And more importantly, throughout the book many of Katniss's decisions and choices are at odds with Coin, not at odds with Snow as much. Sure, they're fighting against the capital, but when she chooses to become the Mockingjay and have those stipulations, it's a way of getting that from Coin. When her unit goes and agrees to continue to have PETA and to play the real-not-real game, it's 
against Coin's desire to have her killed. The infiltration itself is against Coin's orders. And then, of course, the assassination is against Coin. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the book, if you look at it as like a narrative text, which has a primary protagonist and a primary antagonist, Coin would have to fall into that primary role, which I certainly didn't notice in, in past read-throughs. And mm. I think is just a fascinating change for the series to take because the series is still called The Hunger Games. The games are still so central to it. And the capital is still this power structure that is massively oppressive and everything like that. But I appreciate how this book doesn't just rely on maintaining a simple narrative like that, Hmm. but it sees how power structures can be continued despite regime change Mm -hmm. and how they don't just rely on one person to be maintained, but in fact can be maintained through many, many different ways. And yeah, I just, I find that very interesting. Definitely. Because with each new thing that happens, if you've already read the books before, you understand more and more the ending choice Mm -hmm. that Katniss makes. Yeah. Whether you agree with it or not, uh, you you see that choice looming, I feel like, much more. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more intentionally or like slowly you read it and pay attention to what's happening with coin, for yeah. sure. But what about you? What are your narrative threads? So I was thinking about one in particular, which is what we talked about in our read-throughs of both of the previous books, this idea of using the oppressor's weapons against them. Mm. And we didn't talk about that quite as much in Mockingjay. So I was thinking about, is there a follow-through with these ideas? And I think that there really is. We could consider Pollux and Mm. his knowledge of the sewer system, which led to saving the lives of those who survived as a part of that rebellious idea that what the capital did to oppress and destroy Pollux, he used to evade their pods and the mutts and save lives. Yeah. And then I think, interestingly, Gale and Coin, I think maybe demonstrate how it can cross a line into brutal, mm-hmm. <laughs> into vengeance, rather than subversion or toppling or deconstructing but actually inflicting and maybe starting oppressive things themselves uh, with Gale using the nut against the workers in District 2. This mountain and everything that they've done to it has been to oppress the districts Mm. and using that mountain and everything they did to it to kill everyone inside yeah is i think doing that using the oppressor's weapons against them but in this violent brutal excessive way and with coins suggesting a final games that people in the capital have to participate in and watch is using the the (laughs) tool of the oppressor which is these games against them but in doing so, yeah, it's, it's vengeance. It's just doing the same thing. It's not 
subverting the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, I think they demonstrate how it can go <laughs> wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and I think Katniss also, obviously she's been doing this throughout the trilogy, but I wonder if her final decision to kill Coin with the one arrow that Coin gave her mm. could be understood that way too because I'm not sure that that one arrow was only symbolic of the final shot of the war, you know? <laughs> but also maybe the final compliance with Katniss's conditions. Mm-hmm. This is the last act you're going to do that's important that is in the public eye that the public could construe as you are the savior of them. And it also, I think, has the added benefit of both Katniss and Snow being the face of violence in the war, mm-hmm. not Coin. And so for Katniss, it, it, I think it could be understood that what Coin created to project her as the violent one, what Coin created to end my agency and my role in Penem, I'll use to overthrow her. Again, not necessarily condoning the mm-hmm. the the murder, but I think it could be an example of that, uh, but in in a very different way than I think what Coin and Gale did. Yeah, absolutely, and it it's a, also a way of turning against that vengeance you mentioned, mm-hmm. right? So much of these books has been Katniss wanting to kill Snow, and when she gets the chance to do so, it's not important or at least it's not as important i think that that also highlights that it's not really justice it's violence it's perhaps added cruelty because he's dying anyway so katniss when she's given the role of executioner she's given the role of the person to do the violence against him that is not justice she chooses it to instead kill the person who equipped her with it Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's mm-hmm. fascinating. Complete side note, I have one last one to talk about, but I'm also wondering what Johanna's reaction was to Katniss's decision. Mm. Because Johanna weaned herself off of Morphling, was trying so hard, training everything so that she could go because she wanted to kill Snow. Mm-hmm. Before Katniss left, she said, promise me that you'll kill him. Mm -hmm. And then when the time comes, she gives coin. And obviously Snow died anyway at the same time. But I think Johanna would have issue with it because she wanted him to be executed, Mm -hmm. not to him to die in an unknown way because she does have that vengeance. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm just very curious about her reaction to, to that whole thing. And, of course, we understand that Johanna voted for the games as well. Mm-hmm. But I also can imagine Johanna hating Coin because District 13 used her trauma against her in having the wave be her test in trying to become a soldier. I can imagine Johanna hating someone who purposely uses her weakness against her and her trauma against her. Not that that necessarily was Coin's choice, but I could just see her hating Coin 
because she hates everyone. And True. just for the fact that Coin's like, yeah, you're going to wear these District 13 gray outfits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and her just seeing her as a controlling person, too, she, I think she would hate. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. But the last person I want to talk about in regards to this idea of using the oppressor's tools against them is Finnick. Mm. Because he used the secrets that he gained through being sexually exploited to destroy the highest up people in the capital. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just snow. I mean, it was definitely snow. But it was a bunch of rich, powerful people in the capital. And he completely exposed them to the entire world of Penem. And I don't know how people would have reacted. <laughs> <laughs> and if they would have turned against them, if they would have if you know, especially for people who are huge fans of Finnick in the Capitol. Yeah. If they would have called for resignations, if you know, we do know that snow wasn't going outside. Mm-hmm. And if Snow wasn't going outside because he had murdered people through poison, which Finnick revealed, then I kind of was thinking about for the first time this read-through. Is Finnick the true assassin of Mm. Snow? Because he destroyed his image, which in the end, nobody was the assassin of Snow. Yeah. I mean, there was failed assassin of Katniss, and then there was her choice to not be the assassin of him in the very end. But but Finnick is the one who unraveled Snow's narrative of himself to Penem. Absolutely, yeah. And who knows if Snow's isolation itself led to his failing health. The fact that he didn't have as many allies, him being locked up in his mansion means that he was in danger outside of that mansion. And I could absolutely see, even as he's trying to continue to project that strength, it being completely undermined and having fewer and fewer people willing to help him because of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I love that. That's great. (laughs) And it's it's great because it's an assassin, but without the killing. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, yeah, those are my thoughts on narrative threads. That's wonderful. So, why don't we go into our final section, which is kind of sad to say. Yeah, the final section of the final episode. So uh, sad. Don't worry. We'll, we'll talk about what we're going to do next time and what yeah. we're going to go into. We aren't over forever. <laughs> but this final section is our intentions. We assume you've been listening to all of these episodes. <laughs> Instead of just the final one. But if you haven't, this is where we are thinking about kind of a takeaway for ourselves, something to apply to our own lives going forward. Mm-hmm. So what is your intention from this entire read-through from this series? Yeah, there's so many things that one could take away from these books. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think an important one would be to... Think of ourselves as agents, as people with Mm. agency who can make choices even despite the oppressive systems that we're a part of. How can we be the Cressidas? Yeah, exactly. But I think I'm going to focus instead on Katniss's compassion. Mm. Because 
Katniss is not always a nice person, <laughs> but Katniss is so clearly a compassionate person. Yeah. For me, I want to place more of a value on that kind of compassion than on niceties mm -hmm. that can often be easier, but also ultimately maintain status quo. Yeah. So that can be in my own life, doing the hard choices that are compassionate, that can be sacrificial, but are still based in care for others. And also more of a recognition of the people around me who act with compassion and admiration for those choices. Mm, yeah. Kind of like how when Rue is dying, she doesn't tell her everything is going to be okay. Yeah. That would be the nicety, but she's there with her. Exactly. Yeah, that's good. What about you? What's your intention? So mine is moving forward when I find an anti-colonial, anti-capitalist, etc. element of a story, I want to more intentionally track it mm. throughout the story, whether that's in a book or a show, and see how it's continually there, or if it's just like, ah, oh, we'll do it once, but like it's not as interwoven, or how it intersects with other issues that they're talking about. Like how I would notice more individual aspects in the Hunger Games books before, but like seeing them as a whole, seeing them connected to each other, I think is much more meaningful. And so, yeah, just trying to be more intentional about tracking those themes and ideas as I move on to new stories. That's great. Yeah. Yes. So as we close out this series that we spent so much time with mm -hmm. and love so much, we just want to end with something that one of our brilliant patrons, Dallas, said, and this is paraphrasing, not as eloquent as him, but kind of thinking about like, how can we bury Rue? How can we eat the berries? in our world, in, in this world that is set up with exploitation and limiting agency and, and all of these things. How, how do we break through and... Defy that. And defy that and, and try to be the Katniss in those, in w where we can yeah. and whenever we can. And so just leaving with that question, that, that challenge for ourselves to break the games. Yeah. Okay, well, I think that that wraps up our Hunger Games read-through. Sad. Sad. Tears. Tears. Morning. Well, it's more afternoon now. But... I was going to say, I don't do mornings. <laughs> like Terry Pratchett said about Neil Gaiman, mornings are things that happen to other people. Exactly. But our podcast will be continuing. This is not the end of the podcast. So what are we doing in the next few weeks? So next week, we are taking a week off from the normal podcast, but on our Patreon, we will be releasing an episode, which is our adaptation or bad adaptation of Mockingjay Part 2. Mm -hmm. And of course, patrons at any level get access to that. So mm -hmm. we'd love to have you jump on board. Yeah, jump, leap, run, dash there. Exactly. Speaking of strong anti-capitalist stories... <laughs> We are going to do a 
special episode on Squid Game. Mm -hmm. Because in terms of the genre that Hunger Games is in, Squid Games is in, that Battle Royale started. Yeah, or at least became the namesake of. Yeah. Squid Game is done really, really well. If you haven't watched it yet, we highly encourage it. It is done really, really well. It takes some of the similar elements of the genre, but presents new twists on it, uh, gives, yeah, some very strong anti-capitalist messages. The acting is fantastic. Mm -hmm. If you're going to watch it, Definitely do so with the subtitles. Do not go for the dub. <laughs> because... <laughs> well, I forgot there was a dub. Yeah. I know, we forgot there was a dub, but I heard somebody mention that it was really bad. I was like, yeah, you can't dub with this one. Like, the actors do such a good job, and uh, the intonation in the Korean language is so specific uh, that, yeah, you, you really need to do the subtitles. So we're going to have a special episode on that and kind of some sometimes, I'm sure, drawing some parallels to the Hunger Games and uh, what Squid Game is doing differently or progressing or doing not as well or, or whatnot. Then the next series that we're actually going to be going through is The Magicians. So we are going to be going through the TV show, not mm -hmm. the books. The TV show and the books are very different from each other. There are definitely some of the plot points that they take directly from the book and some of the characters, but other things are very rearranged and uh, new characters or characters with the same name but a completely different personality mm -hmm. and things like that. And so you don't need to have read the books at all. I'm sure that there will be sometimes we'll reference them and maybe how something is done differently or whatnot, but The Magicians is exciting to go into because it's a bit lighter and fun mm -hmm. uh, fantasy rather than the more serious, heart-wrenching part of The Hunger Games that we've been in for a while, even though we've definitely enjoyed it. I think it'll be really nice to go to... Uh, funner place. Uh, mm -hmm. Not that they don't deal with some serious topics. They do. I think that they have a really interesting exploration of depression. Yeah. Yeah, that's an element we'll probably definitely be bringing in from the books that I think the books do in a way that I've never really witnessed before in really compelling way that I think both Chris and I can resonate with to some degree because mm -hmm. of our own chronic depression kind of think of the Chronicles of Narnia, but for adults, an updated and more deep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think it's, it's going to be good. And it's also kind of perfect, I think, if as we try to decide if we want to do a read through of Harry Potter or not, it's something that some of our patrons have been like, yes, and we've been toying with, but you know, it's it's also complicated because of how toxic J.K. Rowling has gotten and all of that. Uh, but I think The Magicians is a great place to start first, whether mm -hmm. we move into Harry Potter in the future or not, because they also have some great ideas about the tension of being both disappointed in and loving a fandom. Mm -hmm. So, yes, it is on Netflix currently. I'm sure there are other ways to 
ellipses acquire it. <laughs> so we'll be doing one episode at a time. So yeah. for our first episode, we'll be covering the pilot, the first episode of the show. It's gonna be fun. And that will be released in three weeks. Also, I mentioned last week that we have a resource list of some alternative products or companies that you can use instead of building more into the super exploitative capitalist (laughs) machine. Things like this awesome company that is trying to decolonize spices Mm. uh, from India and yeah, just cool stuff like that. So we are putting that on our Patreon, but it is open to anyone. You don't have to be a patron. There's a link in the episode description. And also if you just go to our Patreon, it's going to be pinned at the top for a while. Or if you're listening to this many, many weeks post when we uploaded this episode, There's different tags, and it'll be under resources, so you can find it there. Also, our quiz will be coming up on Thursday on Mockingjay, so if you are a patron, you can take the quiz. Mm -hmm. And our Zoom's coming up this Saturday. Ah! Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah. Can't wait to see all of our patrons over Zoom and talk a little bit more about The Hunger Games. Our last time. I mean, maybe we'll return at some point, but uh, our last time for the foreseeable future. Next time, we're going to read it in reverse order, starting with <laughs> the end of Mockingjay and going through chapter one of The Hunger Games. That would be such a weird process, but I wonder if it would be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. We want to thank Kimberly Kuniko at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find our designs at lacelet.com, Instagram, or Patreon. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek geek out. out!